This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. So I've been thinking about traditions for Easter, all the things that we did when I was a kid. And I remember a couple of sunrise services, and I could never figure out why we were getting up so early for church. It was just, you know, one of those things that I had trouble as a, as a, a little child wrapping my brain around. What, what I, honestly, what I remember most about Easter is the candy. Digging through the plastic grass for jelly beans, Thinking, thinking I had gotten all of them, and then later picking up that wad of grass like, yeah, jackpot, there's more in the bottom. It's fantastic. For some reason, I mean, I've always loved Cadbury cream eggs. I think that is maybe my favorite Easter candy of all time. But, but chocolate bunnies, for some reason, always enjoyed getting those. And I have to ask, I think there's some kind of personality profile that has something to do with whether you start at the ears of a chocolate bunny or whether you start at the tail of a chocolate bunny to work your way across. Which, which are you? Are you, a, are you an ears first bunny eater or are you a tail first uh, bunny eater? I think, I think I remember just diving into the ears because the chocolate was always thicker at the ears. I don't know if the, the molds for those are upside down or what, but the ears always seem to have more chocolate. I, I'll, let me tell you this. I'm, I think I was a really weird kid because I remember looking forward to eating the candy eyeball of the bunny. And I'm trying to wonder why that was. I mean, I like the taste of it, but I also think it's just weird to have that rabbit staring at you while you're enjoying all of the chocolate. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. But no matter how we, we celebrate Easter, all the traditions we have, the memories, the joys, the, the meaning of Easter is truly significant to each of us as we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter reminds us of the hope that answers the pain of death. And we have to, to acknowledge, as we, as we continue in the story, and we've been talking for, for weeks now in our series uh, about the, the journey of Jesus and his disciples that was leading Jesus to the cross and to the resurrection. And, and what we're really dealing with here is at this stage of the story, is a, is a, a story of, of death and burial, of mourning and grief and loss, and how the resurrection answers that mourning. Now, the people we encounter after the crucifixion, we talked about Jesus on the cross last week, the people that we encounter in, in this span of time, immediately after the crucifixion, they're mourning the loss of Jesus, each and every one of them. In a very relatable way, it's like they're, they're preparing for his funeral as they're, they're ready to bury his body. And, and they're experiencing the same kinds of things we experience, that, that fog that, that hangs as, as we try and make decisions. About, about arrangements and coffins and, and timing and locations and all these, all these things that have to be decided about, about possessions and, and loved ones to care for and pets and, and all these things that, that have to be done right now when we lose a loved one. And yet, in the midst of all of it, this, this fog of grief that hangs over us as we adjust to the reality of what our lives will be like with 
without the one we've lost, what the world will look like without the one that we've lost. Now, just last week, we had a fog day, a heavy, dense fog throughout the city. And it wasn't a fog that hung over Finley. It was in the, the city. It was amongst us. It was throughout everything. It was so dense. It was difficult to see. It was dangerous to drive. And then at like 10, 15, 10, 30, the fog lifted. The, the, the temperature rose. The sun dissipated the fog. And we were able to see clearly. We were able to, to enjoy the, the brightness where there was once dark, the, the clarity where there was once fog obscuring our sight. That, that's the, the image I want us to think about of the story of Easter, this ray of hope that shines into the fog surrounding the grief and mourning that the disciples and the loved ones of Jesus were experiencing, suddenly given a, a clarity of reality, ability to see beyond their immediate circumstances, to, to, to see truly what was going on around them, to remember the purpose that, that they had to go on living for Jesus and serving his kingdom. As we step back into our series, we'll be in the book of John, chapter 19, as we talk about the burial of Jesus. If you want to open your Bibles with me, please do so. The words will be on the screen. If you have a device, a phone, or tablet, you want to use the YouVersion app, like I said, just search under events for Parkview Finley, and you'll be able to follow along there as well. Let's begin reading in verse 31 of chapter 19. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. We'll recognize in the story, these details, we are recognizing the, the purpose of Jesus' death. That he died as a sacrifice for sin. He died as a sacrifice for my sin. He died as a sacrifice for your sin. He died to bring about Salvation for all mankind. And notice how John's words point us to the image of Jesus as the lamb that was slain, the perfect lamb. And we're reminded of two very important details from, from Old Testament. First is the idea of sacrifice, that the people of Israel were called on by God to pay for their sins with blood. And the sacrifices needed to be made to, to bring about their forgiveness, to bring them back into relationship with the Lord after they had done wrong. The second image that, that we, we recognize, especially through John's words here, is of Passover. The, the celebration that, that Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room as he initiated the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal that they celebrated together. All of the people of Israel were, were given instructions to celebrate this holiday by remembering what God did when he delivered his people out of Egypt, how he spared them from the plague of firstborn. The firstborn 
plague was, was the, the angel of the Lord passing through the land of Egypt and taking the life of the firstborn male of every flock and herd of every household, whether they were slaves in Egypt, whether it was the household of the Pharaoh himself. And God instructed his people, if they wanted to be spared from this plague, to faithfully obey his instructions, to take a perfect lamb or goat that had no broken bones, no blemishes, no, no defects, and to sacrifice that animal and to take its blood and paint it on the door frames of their houses. And that blood would mark them, their household, as belonging to the Lord. It would, it would mark their household and, and signify to the, to the angel to pass over those homes. And so they celebrate that Passover of how God spared those families, spared the firstborn children, the firstborn sons of the, the people of Israel. That, that was the celebration. That was the reason the Israelites were gathered in Jerusalem at this time. And John draws our attention to the fact that Jesus truly is the perfect lamb that was slain, that he had no broken bones. In fact, when they came to break the legs of those who had been crucified, they, they passed by Jesus because he was already dead. His bones were intact. He, he was perfect. No, no spot or blemish on his record. He was completely innocent when he was executed. And that allowed for him to become the sacrifice in our place, to substitute for us, to pay the, the penalty that we deserve to pay and provide to us a grace that we never have deserved, that Jesus laid down his life to pay for our sin. And John very clearly reminds us of this image of Jesus as the Lamb. And the, the verbiage he uses, very, very clear and careful verbiage. I, I recall you know, talking about communion, preparing to share in the Lord's Supper together. There are times when I have said, you know, here's, here's the, the bread that represents the body of Jesus uh, that was broken on the cross. And that, that, that's a misleading statement. I'm sorry that I've said that before. I'm going to be careful about saying that because it's very clear that his bones were never broken, that his, he laid down his life, that he allowed his body to be nailed to the cross. He gave it willingly for us. And he allowed his blood to be poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Not accidentally spilled, not unintentional, but very purposeful. Jesus laid down his life to provide the spiritual cleansing that we would need to cover our sin. This is the love that, that drove Christ to, to consider our spiritual condition and know that we would need his sacrifice to draw us back into relationship with him, that we would be helpless without him without hope. And that's why he was willing to lay down his life to obey the will of God and follow through with this selfless, sacrificial act. We'll pick back up in John chapter 19, verse 38, as the, the story progresses. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking the body of Jesus, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 
Now, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus stepped forward to care for the body of Jesus. This was a, a, a very significant demonstration of care. And it's important to notice that the Romans were not going to care for the body of Jesus. They had, they had been responsible for his execution. And their practice was to leave the bodies of those who had been crucified for the scavengers to have. And then to remove the remains. Now, the Israelites were very careful about how they treated their dead with respect and with care. Joseph and Nicodemus stepped forward to be the ones who were responsible for the body of Jesus. In obedience to the law, they wanted to make sure that they were able to care for the body of Jesus right now. And they went to ask special permission of Pilate. They had a request granted to take the body of Christ and prepare it. And it was the day of preparation, a day when, when the, all of the people of Israel would do all of the chores, all of the tasks necessary so that they could rest on the Sabbath. A very significant day for each of them as they thought about everything that they would need to do to be faithful and obedient to God's word. That they would, they would take care of all of the details on the day of preparation so that the Sabbath they were free. And this is one of those things that needed to be taken care of on the day of preparation because it was considered work for them and was not permitted on the Sabbath day. And the women who saw this take place were thinking about coming back to add perfume to the body of Christ. But they would not be able to do that until after the Sabbath, the day after the Sabbath. And we think about the, the timing of how all that played out. That they were caring for the body of Jesus and laying it in a tomb and then the women were, were preparing for a time when they would come back later, but they had to wait days before coming back. And those seem like inconsequential details to us. They seem like maybe insignificant details until we consider the words of Jesus that he continually spoke, that the religious leaders would take his life, and then he would take it up again three days later. They would destroy the temple, and three days later he would rebuild it. That, that there was a, a very specific timing about the resurrection, and all of these details, as insignificant as they seem, not only fulfill prophecy, but fulfill the words of Jesus that he spoke about his own death and resurrection exactly the way he said it would happen. Now, Nicodemus and, and Joseph together represent uh, unique individuals for this time. They were both a part of the, the Sanhedrin, religious leaders who would have been present for the trial of Jesus as, they, as Jesus was questioned and a verdict was rendered. They would have been among those people. And yet they were disciples of Jesus, secret disciples, because they were afraid of the rest of those Jewish leaders. Nicodemus had come to ask Jesus questions in the night, so no one would know that he had come. And I wonder about these two men, as they listened to Jesus being questioned, as they heard the verdict being rendered, as they watched him being taken away to Pilate, what what were they thinking? What were they saying? Did they, did they object to the way Jesus was being treated? Did they, did they sit quietly, trying not to stand out, knowing what was happening around them was wrong? How did they respond to the treatment that Jesus received? And why now, after his death, were they willing to step forward and make themselves known? Why did they step away from the rest of the Jewish leaders and go to Pilate and make this request to care for the body of Jesus? What might have happened if they had lived authentically in their faith? Before Jesus died, what, what might they have learned from Jesus? How might they have made an impact in the world around them 
if they had made themselves known. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the significance of proclaiming our faith as we discussed uh, Peter's denial of Christ and, and asked some difficult questions about what it means for us to live our faith authentically, uh, what it means for us to make a statement through our lives, through our actions, through our words. And it's important for us to think about the, the significance of living authentically in our faith, of making our belief in Jesus known in the world around us so that we can make an impact on the lives of people around us, so that we can help them come to know Jesus as well. That's, that's the, the role that we've been given, the task that, that, that Christ has laid on our lives as believers, that we would live in that faith. That not only would we be faithful, but we would take the opportunities that he presents to us to spread the news about his death, burial, and resurrection, to help others come to know him as Lord and Savior. It's important for us to recognize that not only is that, that proclamation of faith important, but the timing of it is also important, that God presents these moments in our lives, God bless you, for us to step into. These moments for us that he uses us to make a significant difference in the world around us, to impact the lives of people that he's placed next to us. He's given us this responsibility. And the timing is crucial. And it's important for us to recognize those moments where our fear of others conflicts with our love for the Lord, like, the, like Joseph and Nicodemus. It says they were both afraid of the religious leaders, and that was part of the reason why they were so secret about their faith. We need to recognize those moments where fear is stifling our authenticity, where fear is stifling that proclamation of faith and, and allow the Lord to, to work in us to overcome that fear so that we can be faithful each and every time. He creates those moments of opportunity for us. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus approached Pilate with a special request. They weren't the only ones to approach Pilate. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, we read more. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, here's the second request that was made of Pilate. The chief priests, the Pharisees, wanted to make sure that the victory was final, that their victory over Jesus wouldn't be diminished. And they, they saw the death of Jesus as a victory. They had been so frustrated watching Jesus steal the attention of the Israelites, watching Jesus take the influence that they felt they deserved. And they felt disrespected by that. And they had been plotting and planning to find a way to destroy the reputation of Jesus. To, to draw the attention of the crowd back to them. And they were willing to take his life to do it. So they went to Pilate and made this special request. We think the disciples are probably going to take his body and make up some kind of rumor about how he rose from the dead. How, let, let us take a guard and make sure that that doesn't happen. They wanted to make sure their victory remained. It's never a good idea to claim victory prematurely. Never a good idea. And we've all seen 
an overconfident team lose the game in the fourth quarter. We, we've all seen an overconfident team let go of a big lead in the second half. Why? Because they felt confident in that victory. The religious leaders believed that Jesus was dead and gone. And the only way he would return is if the disciples pulled some prank and initiated rumor that he had risen. Unfortunately, this belief that Jesus was dead not only was what the religious leaders were acting on, his disciples were acting on that belief as well. This belief had taken hold of his disciples. They were mourning the loss of Jesus. As Nicodemus and Joseph had taken the body of Jesus to care for it, to wrap it carefully, lay it in the tomb. There were women who were, who were planning on coming to, to care for his body later, to put, put perfume on it. And the disciples themselves were overcome with grief. Every person that we read about here was affected by the death of Christ. Each one of them affected in different ways, but all of them operating on the belief that Jesus was dead and that there was no hope. They were living in the absence of the presence of Jesus. They were living in the fog of grief, mourning his loss. There's significant darkness overarching the story as each and every one of these individuals were trying to cope with the death of Jesus. I want to invite you to, to stand in worship in just a moment. It's worship that is inspired by the hope that comes in the next part of the story. As we turn the page and, and see what it is that the resurrection of Jesus meant to the disciples, what, what the resurrection of Jesus meant to, to those who loved him most, what the resurrection of Jesus truly means for all of us, this ray of light shining into the darkness, shining into the fog, providing clarity, providing joy, providing hope. That's where we're going to go in the next portion of the sermon, and that's what we celebrate as we stand and sing together. Can you imagine the emptiness that the disciples would have felt in the days after the death and burial of Jesus. These are men who had left their lives behind to become his disciples, who'd walked away from their livelihood, who'd stepped away from the comforts of home, who'd, who'd walked away from the closeness of their relationships, all to belong to Jesus, to, to travel with him, to teach with him, to see him perform miracles, to devote themselves to him as their rabbi as their master. Here in these last days, in these moments, they must have been feeling the weight of that fog that was hanging over them, the emptiness of grieving the loss of Jesus. But there's more to the story. So we read Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And we turn to John's gospel in chapter 20 for more detail about what happened next. Peter and the other disciple that we now know very likely is John started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. What an incredible moment. And yet, it leaves me with so many questions. The first things that we must consider is the, the measure of belief that the disciples had in Jesus, as dedicated as they were to him. They believed in him enough that they were willing to devote their lives to him. And leading up to the cross, Jesus had taken more and more opportunities to remind them of what was going to take place. I'm going to lay down my life and take it up again. Headed to the cross, the religious leaders, they're going to kill me, but I'll rise again. Time and time again, he, he talked to them about what would take place. And even as he told them these things, they, when they experienced his death, they were filled with grief. And seemed to focus primarily on his death and not his life. Was it because they were so overwhelmed with their grief that all they could consider was their loss? Was it because that they, in hearing the words of Jesus, could only believe what they were feeling, could only believe what they were seeing, what they were hearing from their own experiences, could only believe so much because they had never seen anything else like a resurrection take place before. Sure, Jesus had, had called Lazarus out of the grave, but why would they not believe that Jesus could rise on the third day? Now, in our pursuit of Jesus, it's important for us to, to learn from this example about what it is to believe wholeheartedly what Scripture says. To not allow our own experiences to limit what we're willing to believe. To not allow what we see and hear to, to diminish the fullness of our understanding of who Jesus is in our lives. Our relationship with Jesus is dependent upon our belief in him. And it's important for us to, to dive into Scripture, to investigate the mysteries that are hidden there, and to fully believe everything that Scripture tells us. Not to, not to take hold of a phrase and pull it out of Scripture and live according to a phrase, but to understand the context, to understand the whole story, and to live according to truth as it's written. Not just the things that are easy for us to take hold of, not just the things that we like doing that are faithful to Jesus, but the things that are difficult, that we would obey those, that we would believe the things that, that require us 
to go out of our comfort zone, things that, that require more of us than we want to give, beliefs that complicate our lives because they defy our logic, they defy our tradition, they defy our, our, our preference to believe those things as well because they're true, because they're God's word, because he's given them to us to help us grow, to help us be drawn closer to him. If we refuse, we limit the experience that we'll have with Jesus. If we refuse to believe them, we diminish what that relationship looks like. If the disciples had simply been willing to believe everything that Jesus said to him, they might not have had to endure such pain in the loss of Jesus. They might not have had to grieve and mourn so significantly in these days. But because they did, there is a silver lining that their joy, the hope that was given to them in the resurrection of Jesus was intensified, was magnified because they had experienced the lows of sorrow and grief and had them answered by the hope and joy of resurrection. And that's exactly what the resurrection of Jesus provides for us, hope and joy. And hope and joy are what we are desperately in need of today. As we watch the video together, how many of those examples of emptiness could you relate to? A lot. Yeah, me too. Maybe even all of them. Emptiness seems to be a defining characteristic of our culture today. So many people who are being confronted with this overwhelming emptiness and the emotions that so closely follow behind, anxiety, Depression, hopelessness, loneliness, disappointment, heartache, misery. And where's the answer to that emptiness? When we go searching for something to end that feeling, what we find is that everything in this world that we chase after, everything in this world that we hope will answer that feeling that will end that emptiness inside of us only creates more desire, only creates a hunger to keep having more and more of it because it's temporary, because it's, it's limited. The only thing that can truly answer the emptiness that we feel is to have that emptiness filled with a new life in Christ, to have that emptiness filled by the hope and joy that was provided to us the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Only when we allow him to resolve our condition of emptiness will we find the hope and joy that comes to us as he fills us with new life. That's the victory that's found when we put the cross and the empty tomb together. The sacrifice that made forgiveness possible and the hope that comes of new, from new life in him, a, a life here on earth that is abundant and full of joy and hope, and a life with him for eternity that he calls us into as he provides the way for us to step into it. Jesus sacrificed himself to bring about our forgiveness. He was raised to life to conquer the sting of death. And it's in him that we find an answer to the question of emptiness.